You're listening to the Oh Yeah Dig It Podcast Show on Anchor FM and the Magic Squirrel Network. Beware your human heart. This is Lucy, and I'm here to recommend the Diabolical Index, where the pages of the uncanny reside. Tune in Monday nights when my daddy talks about weird and scary books and sometimes talks to interesting people about their writing, too. You might learn something, but you could fall asleep. His voice can put you in a, in a trance. Anyway, check out the Diabolical Index Monday nights, only on Magic Girl Network. This is Jack Burton in the Pork Chop Express, and I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. It's a pretty amazing planet we live on here, and a man would have to be some kind of fool to think we're all alone in this universe. There is a hidden world where ancient evil weaves a modern mystery. What's going on here? Is this some kind of magic? The darkest magic. They call it Little China. Finally, we shall bring order out of chaos. It's where big trouble was waiting for Jack Burton. Who? Jack Burton. Me. Jack. Jack. Jack! They told him to go to hell. We make one move. And that's just where he's going. Somebody, I don't care who, tell me what is going on. How are you going to spring us? I have no idea. There are many mysteries, many unanswerable questions, even in a life as short as yours. <coughs> my destiny rests in your capable hands. Hey, I'll do my best. Oh, God, is this really happening? <laughs> This is gonna take Cracker Jack timing, Wayne. One, two, three. We may be trapped. Total concentration. Seriously? Oh, yeah. Ready, Jack? I was born ready. Way to go, Jack. Jack Burton's coming to rescue your summer. Hey, what more can a guy ask for? 20th Century Fox presents Kurt Russell in John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. It's on the reflexes. What's up, everybody? It's me. Your boy, your host of the Oh Yeah Dig It Podcast Show. And that's right, I'm back. Back again, everybody. I was out for a spell uh, in other confines of the Digiverse, fighting off foes like the management of uh, time management and writer's block and the extended hours at my place of employ where I use my government handle. 
Uh, but here I am, back from the frying pan like spam, ready to give you an amazing episode four. And when I was telling my wife what the subject was, she said, oh, that's a good one. But don't go too fast. I says, honey, I never drive faster than I can see. Besides that, it's all in the reflexes. <laughs> that's right. On this fourth episode of the Oh Yeah Dig It podcast show, I'm going to talk about big trouble in little China. It's a cult classic nowadays, but it didn't start out as a smash hit in the box office. I'll give you guys some insight and behind-the-scenes information on the film, its impact on yours truly, and the impact it has on the pop culture spectrum and creative worlds alike. Adventure doesn't come any bigger. So, okay, Big Trouble in Little China was released on July 1st, 1986. The film is directed by the great director of horror and fantasy, John Carpenter. It was written by Gary Goldman and David Z. Weinstein. No relation to Harvey or Bob, though. (laughs) And it was revised and modernized for the times by W.D. Richter, who adapted Evasion of the Body Snatchers and The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the Eighth Dimension into film. I believe he also directed Buckaroo Banzai. Um, But here's the first interesting piece of information about Big Trouble. It was originally envisioned as a Western set in the 1880s. Uh, which I think that might have been an interesting uh, take on the film if they did it. But, uh, you know, for whatever reason, at the time, it was released by 20th Century Fox. And uh, Carpenter notes in the 2016 book, The Official Making of Big Trouble in Little China, by Tara Bennett and Paul Terry, that the studio was wanting an Asian-inspired Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, it's not quite the film they got. For what it's worth, it was the first American-made kung fu film filled with Chinese mysticism, comedy, and quality effects for the time. But stepping back for a moment, every great anything starts with an origin or idea, and Big Trouble is no different. Back in the early 80s, two writers starting out, Gary Goldman and David Z. Weinstein, came together to write this screenplay. And uh, I'm glad they did, because it was pretty cool, the whole concept in, in my eyes. Uh, their influences being Asian mystical martial arts films and the Tong Wars in 19th century San Francisco, Chinatown. Uh, and they both had like a mutual love for classic westerns. Um, I, I do. I still think I think this mashup would totally have worked like today. You know, um, or even then in the 80s, like, I don't know really why they said, ah, we don't really like this setting. Let's let's modernize this. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm glad they did, but I think it would have worked that way, too. I mean, how cool would it have been to see like a Western version of this? Um, so after re- some research into the Tongs, who uh, were a real group, you can Google them uh, and 19th century San Francisco. The two writers penned Lotus. The plot featured a cowboy named Wiley Prescott, who was a friend, who has a friend, excuse me, named Sun. Sun is a Chinese railroad worker, and Sun needs to pick up his fiance at the at the San Francisco docks. Um, enter the evil sorcerer Lo Pan, who seems to be the only original and consistent character from. I mean, when I say that, the only character that translated over to the modern version. And so, 
you know, uh, cheers to that. Lopan's in the original screenplay as well. Um, who separates son from his fiance. That's what he does. He separates son from his fiance and, uh, and Wiley from his horse. So you kind of see the, the parallels there with the modern version now and, and with the, this Western idea, uh, the fiance is Lotus. So that coupled with all the, uh, magic and mysticism, mysticism of Chinese fantasy sounds pretty cool, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I was, like I keep saying, I just think like either way it would have worked, maybe. Um, uh, so script to agent, it was a positive response, minus the title. Uh, some short brainstorming, uh, barred out titles like Chinatown Gun and Big Trouble in Little China, with the latter beating out the former. Um, and then from, like I said earlier, the here, the studio, they sent the script to W.D. Richter for an alternative spin on the story. And at this point, Richter was already an academy. Academy Award nominee for the 1980 film uh, Brubaker, which I think had uh, Robert Redford. Uh, and he also, yes, he, like I said, he directed Buckaroo Banzai. Um, so he had some clout in Hollywood. Uh, his take on the script was that won the brass over at Fox, though, and from there it was shopped around to directors. So enter John Carpenter. Um, with all of the intensity and comedy and kung fu, uh, it could handle big trouble was an easy go for Carpenter. The name alone won him over Carpenter states. I read it and just had to do it. You have to do any movie that's named big trouble in little China. The high energy script would need the help of some high energy collaborators to assist Carpenter in his vision and also provide that same tone behind the scenes. So this is where Carpenter reaches out to Larry J. Franco to produce and be first assistant director. The two had already worked on Escape from New York from 1981, The Thing from 82, Christine from 1983, and Starman from 1984 together. History, to say the least. Then came Tommy Lee Wallace, who became the second unit director, having production designer and co-editor and after credits to his name for Halloween from 1970 and The Fog from 1980. And then next on the crew came Academy Award nominee and cinematographer Dean Cundy. Cundy knew Carpenter's work uh, or vision best because he had shot Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, and The Thing for the director. But some of his other work included Romancing the Stone, Back to the Future, and um, even though this is not till 1988 after Big Trouble, but I have to mention it, he also did um, shot Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So preparation and construction of design work followed the men, uh, brought on The Thing production designer John J. Lloyd. Lloyd was adept to Carpenter's admiration for the wide 2.35 aspect ratio of film shooting, which played well to the kung fu action sequences that would play out as well. Lloyd was able to utilize a color palette with reds and greens that really enhanced the background details um, and really played into like the whole Chinese kind of, you know, color scheme um, um and then from there the next person they brought on board was april ferry who was a costume designer and her previous credits although not as a costume designer included the big chill and irreconcilable differences from 83 and 84 respectively uh ferry was key to jack burton's contemporary look and lopan's numerous iterations 
Finalizing Carpenter's uh, boss, or excuse me, his crew was the visual effects producer Richard Edlin of Boss Film Studios. Boss Film Studios consisted of special makeup effect artists and creature creators like Steve Johnson. Um, if you don't know who that is, just watch Ghostbusters or um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Poltergeist, things like that. He really had a big hand in making some of the creatures or effects that we saw in those movies. Um, and they had also, Boss Film had also worked with Industrial Light and Magic on the original Star Wars films, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Lost Ark and Poltergeist. With the July 3rd, 86 release date set, which I guess maybe they released it early, I don't know, because other information led me to believe it was July 1st, Fox gave Carpenter and Franco a 10-week pre-production schedule and a $20 million budget. There was a rush, so to speak, to make and complete the film, as there was a rival studio produced film in the works with a rising comedian star and a similar story and that star was Eddie Murphy and the film was The Golden Child and we're back after the little break and fun fact just so uh, we all make this perfectly clear Larry J. Franco is not related to James or Dave Franco but he is the father to former Atlanta Braves baseball player, Matt Franco. And, at a time, was Kurt Russell's brother-in-law. So there was one more hurdle for Carpenter to get over once his production crew was set. And this would be casting. Now, while most movies are pretty much in an offer acceptance situation with casting and auditions, of course, Big Trouble in Little China had another concern. There were a handful of important roles in which Carpenter had to hire an army of Asian actors. This would be cause for concern, though, from the Asian community because a year previous to Little China's release, a film titled Year of the Dragon received much dismay for negative ethnic representation. Big Trouble was looking like it was in big trouble within Asian Pacific communities. They even disliked the title. I mean, how can you hate the title? I mean, it's it's comedy in the name. But, I mean, I guess I can understand a little bit, too. Um, but Carpenter remedied this with being proactive in the community meetings to alleviate concern, and he also held, uh, excuse me, he hired casting director Joanna Merlin, who represented many Asian actors, uh, a lot from, like, theater and stuff like that, and Asian theater, um, and so once things settled down, casting began, and overall production commenced in 1985, um, October to be exact, October of 1985. Um, you know, this is, this to me is really like a pivotal production team. Um, you know, and we, I guess we, we don't really like think about that when like we're watching a movie. I mean, I guess unless like that, that's what we're really into for, into like the value that the actual crew um, puts into the movie, but like I feel like this was like one of those first movies when I watched it again, being older and understanding movies better, that I was really like, man, these people who put this together, are, it's amazing. A, a lot more like special effects end and stuff like that, but uh, all the same, it just really had an effect on me, you know. And I think that it's one of the movies that always makes me like, you know think about funny quotes from it and stuff and the colors and the visuals when I'm having like a bad day or something, because 
that's what I do. I go to like places and stuff like that in my mind. And so it's just, that's probably the effect it had on me a lot. Um, mostly, you know, um, just that I can pull from it to feel better when I'm not feeling better. Um, and it's not the only movie that does that or music or whatever, but it's still pretty pinnacle because I can even like visually go back and be like, that's so cool. And this and that, and you know, again, any hardship kind of goes away. Um, moving on though. Uh, one thing I do find interesting about the genius or visionary directors is that they usually stick with what works when it comes to casting. Uh, John Carpenter is a master at this, though, in casting Jack Burton, who is, for all intent and purposes, the sidekick of this film. He looked no further than Kurt Russell, with whom he had already worked with on The Thing, um, Escape from New York, and I guess they did like a, I don't know if it was made for TV or whatever, but like an Elvis movie in 79. Um, but previously, you know, what's cool is that Russell was serious in those previous roles. And here he utilized this John Wayne tone and persona with this comedic prose of like this clueless truck driver. Um, cool to me because, you know, in Russell's later comedic roles, he still seemed to be Jack Burton to me, you know, like in in uh, Overboard and uh, even like Tango and Cash a little bit, like where he's kind of he, there's like Burtonisms in, in the way he like portrays the character physically, you know, uh, if not, um, by script. Um, and that's just kind of cool to me. I think he kind of, um, I think he kind of brought that with him after, after big trouble in little China, I think, especially in his comedic roles, he, I think he knew like, wow, Jack Burton was like success. So I can bring a little bit of him to each of these comedic roles. I do. Um, I could be wrong too. So what, you know, I don't know anything. I just do all this research. Um, you know, but from the making of Big Trouble in Little China, Russell commented, it's like, imagine a movie star and without knowing it, the director always printed the take where he messed it up. I always imagine Jack Burton going to the screening of Big Trouble in Little China, his autobiography, and he's shocked at what he's watching, but not able to say anything about it because the audience is enjoying it so much. So he would have to go along with it hilarious and russell had a lot of input in the burton role too from the machismo to the mullet even down to the tank top and knee-high moccasins russell infused himself and his range into the character and despite any shortcomings in jack burton russell maintained a high level of likability to the character um you know like i said he he really invests himself in roles. And I don't know if, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you know, I get it. I get like actors like, um, might go to an audition and dress up like what they think or perceive the role to be, or, you know, to get in character. And I mean, I don't know how many of them do that now. I don't know if they still do that. Um, but it's interesting too, because like Dennis Dunn, who plays Wang Chi, he kind of, kind of did the same thing when he infused his character you know, he like apparently, I guess, because it was the 80s, he like had this kind of like Air Force style looking jumpsuit that he liked to wear like in real life, I guess. But he like thought, well, hey, you know, this guy, he's kind of like this is what he would look like. And and they went with it. And so like he's like wearing this jumpsuit throughout the movie. But, um, you know, uh, if one film critic or overzealous fan were to be so critical as to say, well, Jack Burton is not the main character. He's the sidekick. The main character is Wang Chi. Burton's best friend and played most memorably by Dennis Dunn. 
Dunn's only film role previous to Big Trouble in Little China was on that movie Year of the Dragon in 85. Yeah, the same film that received heavy backlash from the Asian communities. So, as with Russell, Dunn played heavy into his character, which is what I was talking about, you know, how how Chi would look, um, and brought in his little jean jacket and fedora and jumpsuit, and they got the okay from Carpenter and Ferry, the uh, director and the costume uh, designer. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize this though, but like one of the key elements to Chi was that he wasn't just an Asian, but an Asian American. And and that wasn't lost on the fans, you know, who uh, in the following years since Big Trouble's release have, you know, commended Dennis Dunn on his portrayal of the character. You know, again, from the making of, uh, it meant a lot because my folks and my family have been in America since the turn of the century. He expands. However, since I was a kid, I often felt like people treated me like an outsider while I was growing up, so I felt I needed to prove myself. This is a big takeaway from the film, too, because Dunn was instructed by Carpenter to keep the character real. Don't try to be Asian American, just be himself. The rest of it came together for Wang Chi with the mix of Kurt Russell as Jack Burton, which we know that's a great, great tag team right there in film to me. And, and this friendship between them, you know, between Burton and Chi is really like the nucleus or heart of the movie. Dunn playing the distraught best friend in search of his girlfriend and her subsequent rescue from an evil sorcerer and his best friend with a heart of gold who is bumbling along to help. Because that's what friends do. The chemistry between Dunn and Russell is magnetic, hilarious, and aids the movie in a lot of its comedic high notes. But another character that adds to the comedic camaraderie is Egg Shen. Played by the late Victor Wong. Um, I didn't know this, but like he died uh, the day after September 11, 2001. And it was from a heart attack. And and not to like kill the mood real quick, but apparently like two of his three sons were in New York. And he didn't know. Maybe I guess one of them worked in the World Trade Center. And, and, and he didn't know if they were okay or not. Um, it came out that they were, but he had stayed up all night watching the news. And then the next morning, his wife had found him like he had died from a heart attack, they say. So, you know, rest in peace, Ake Shen, you know, Victor Wong. But um, just to just to go into Victor Wong a little bit, you know, uh, he also was in Michael Simino's Year of the Dragon the one that was getting the heavy backlash. Um, but Victor Wong was more than that, you know, like he was a student at the San Francisco Art Institute and also studied journalism, uh, political science. And uh, he pretty much grew his acting chops in the Asian American theater, as did Don and a couple of other people in, in the Big Trouble in Little China film. But he also became really close with Dennis Dunn and they ended up working on three films together. And his character, Egg Shen, was a talkative charmer who ran the Egg Fu Young Tours business. Uh, the comical tour bus highlights the slapstick of Egg Shen. And uh, almost like a sidekick to Shen is the bus. Um, you know, I, I love his whole, like, just dialogue when he's, like, traipsing through the 
alley. And I mean, these are supposed to be streets of Chinatown, San Francisco, I guess, in this like rickety old bus with like this like ripped off top. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's alluding to giving his patrons like a sky view, but, and he's just going on with his spiel and like this stuff's like happening as going on around him. It's pretty funny. Um, but he was the practitioner of the Chinese magic and collecting potions. And he's also the one who keeps Lopan in check. Um, you know, and, uh, moving on though, but you know, We'll get back to that because, of course, they have a, a lot of great scenes with Egg Shen. Um, for every hero, though, or bumbling sidekick, there's a woman or women who play their foil. And this is where we enter Gracie Law, you know, who was played by the beautiful Kim Cattrall. Um, you know, and, and it's kind of crazy, though, because, like, okay, yeah, I saw Big Trouble in Little China the first time, probably around 9 or 10 years old. And, you know, when you're 9 or 10, you're not really knowing who the heck people... I knew Kurt Russell. I knew him because I had seen him in other stuff. But everyone else, you're just like, yeah, whatever. Don't know who that is. But then years later, watching it again, and I'm like, okay, she looks familiar, you know. And then watching Sex in the City, and you're like, oh, wait, wait a minute. That's that's uh, Gracie Law. So kind of i don't know how big of a fan i am of kim cattrall but i mean at the same time it's like you know she's one of the actresses that like still handles her own today you know and she's got a new show coming out too i forget what it's called but i saw a trailer for it and it looks pretty good on fox um but gracie law you know her character is a quick no-nonsense crusader for civil rights and very quick and easy to put jack in his place in an instant Um, but most people at the time might have known her for more of her comedy because she was in some pretty successful films like Porky's from 1981 and Police Academy from 1984, and uh, which is kind of which is kind of weird because Cattrall herself is actually a theatrically trained actress, um, and before hitting the big screen, you know, she kind of that's what she did as her career, but. Um, it's funny, though, when I was reading this book, The Making Of, because she she recalls about her audition, you know, when she was getting ready to do it. She says, you know, uh, a funny thing happened during her audition. She had did the reading, and then she left the room, and when she walked out to her car, she's like, oh, shit, I don't have my glasses. Um, I guess her sunglasses, maybe, or maybe their regular reading glasses. But, uh, you know, she's like, how am I going to go back in there and get them? You know, because back in the day, I guess there was kind of like this, like, faux pas of like after you're an audition you that was it you were done until they called you back or whatever you didn't like go back in the room for anything and you know whatever i don't know maybe they thought like it was like a sign of like being hasty or like just eager you know well you didn't do that it was a no-no so um that was one of her you know first things going back and doing that and they just kind of laughed at her when she came back in and, you know, no big deal, I guess. Uh, it didn't hurt her. She got the role. So, but uh, Big Trouble was also like, it was her first like genre film. So there were a lot of firsts for her working on the film. And um, like, it was the first time that she worked with a green screen 
but it was also a first time working with contact lenses since she was like a girl with green eyes uh, in the film. And um, but this is kind of crazy. Like it would take them like 15 minutes. Like they would give her a 15 minute warning just to get her mentally prepared for the context because it would take about 20 minutes or so just for them to like dry up because it hurt. They were at the time the lenses like they're not like today, like they were hard and with her eyes not being used to that. Like, so like they would, her eyes would just weep and weep. And so it would take about 20 minutes just for that to stop and dry up before they could like start shooting scenes. You know, I mean, that's kind of, can you imagine? It's kind of crazy. But nowadays, they just CGI that stuff, you know. Um, they would. Um, but the most enigmatic character to me uh, in Big Trouble, of course, is Wang's love, Miao Yang, played by the lovely and introverted Susie Pai. Um, and Susie Pye was born in Ohio. What? Ohio. Yes. Toledo, Ohio. Um, she actually became famous. Well, I don't know. Okay. She didn't become famous, but she got her career in modeling her opportunity from, she was a cheerleader for the Philadelphia Eagles. And this, like I said, opened opportunities for modeling and stuff, uh, which she actually did for Penthouse. And then she became their first Asian pet of the month in January of 1981, which led to her acting. Um, you know, she had minor roles in movies like Sharky's Machine from 1981 and The Cosby Show. So, uh, And another cool fact, too, is like she competed in the spokesmodel category in the second season of Star Search. So those are some cool things to maybe like YouTube or like Google search, you know, I don't know, but, um, the thing about Susie Pye was, you know, she, she was very shy and quiet and a lot of the, you know, co-stars and the crew on the set were, you know, they said she was great to work with. She was stellar in her role. Like she was on point. She did her things. She didn't really have too many takes, you know, it didn't take too many takes for her to, to do things, but, uh, um, she would get stuff pretty much on the first go. And it's funny because, like, in one scene, the scene where Lopan is attempting to take her blood from her and, and Law, uh, he's using this, like, retractable needle, like a Hollywood needle, I guess. But he's pressing too hard. And and uh, according to Carpenter, the director, he, he says you can actually, when she grimaces in the scene, like, she's actually really in pain. But she kept going with it because, you know, like, that's just how she worked through her scenes. She just did it, you know. Um, but you know, she she did other she did a couple other things um, after Big Trouble, but pretty much since 1988, she's been out of the spotlight, and it kind of makes me wonder, like, um, she back in Toledo? Cause you trying to do a Google search on her, and it's hard. I mean, you'll see like her old stuff, but like it's hard to uh, maybe the white pages. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> be interesting to find out what she's up to these days though. But, uh, since I'm talking about all the characters and stuff in big trouble in little China. And I mean, when I get done with this podcast, I really do want you guys to like get back at me on my Facebook page on the, on the, Oh yeah, dig it podcast show, Facebook page, you know, or, uh, um, Instagram. I'm going to start putting more stuff on Instagram, you know, more like the supplemental material, but I want to know what you guys thought of it. I want to know what you guys thought of big trouble in little China. Like I want, that response, you know, 
Um, it's important because this is what I'm sharing with you guys, and we can all share it together is our love for pop culture and all these crazy things and not crazy things, or if you thought it sucked, you know, you know hit me back, let me know, you know. Um, and I'm going to talk about, like, all these characters, you know, Eddie Lee, Margot Litzenberger, The Three Storms, but I want to talk about Lopan, and we're going to talk about him after the break. Burton and the Pork Chop Express, and I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. Are you crazy? Is that your problem? Indeed. Are you crazy? Is that your problem? Indeed. Look, we came here to see David Lopan, all right? Ah, David Lopan. You have succeeded, Mr. Burton. What, you? Uh, I don't get this at all. I thought Lopin... Shut up, Mr. Burton. You have not brought upon this world to get it. Come on. Lopin is like... Nothing uh, you can understand. Magic. The darkest magic. My soul swims in it. Scattered across time. Trapped in the world of formlessness. Magic. The darkest magic. My soul swims in it. Scattered across time. Trapped in the world of formlessness. There are many mysteries, many unanswerable questions. Even in a life as short as yours. Yeah, well, the way I see it doesn't mean we shouldn't ask. Like, where's my truck? You're not looking for a truck. You're looking for a girl. A girl with green eyes. Magic. The darkest magic. My soul swims in it. Scattered across time. Yes, yes, the darkest magic. And that is one of the famous lines from Lo Pan, who is played by James Wong. That is a song called Darkest Magic. It's a remix, really, of uh, some quotes and music from the Big Trouble in Little China, done pretty well by a group, I guess they're called Supervillains. So shout out to Supervillains for Darkest Magic. But, um,. The ever-elusive figure that is Lo Pan is played excellently by actor James Hong, like I said. Uh, Hong, who also has producer and director credits to his name, is an American actor of Chinese descent. Um, and he began his career in the 50s. He's still alive today, too. I mean, not that he couldn't be, but uh, he starred in the crime series The New Adventures of Charlie Chan in 57 and 58. But... Roles in Chinatown with Jack Nicholson from 1974, Airplane in 1980 with Leslie Nielsen, and Blade Runner in 82 with Harrison Ford. Um, so that's pretty cool. I mean, he's, he's, he's done some pretty prominent stuff. Um, but in Chinese, Lo Pan means boss. And in Big Trouble, Lo Pan is David Lo Pan, chairman of the National Orient Bank and owner of the Wing Kong Import export trading company he's like an evil superman businessman by day evil villain by night type shit you know what i'm saying yeah uh oh yeah yeah ooh, macho likes that too um hmm. but the story goes that some emperor in china named king shi huang overpowered lopan and put a curse on him uh so instead of being real huang made lopan just a evil dream 
Um, and because of this, Lopin is the dark, menacing spirit of chaotic power. But but to break the curse, see, the, to break this curse, he needs to find and marry and take the blood of a woman with dragon green eyes. And this is where, you know, Miao Yin and Gracie Law come in. Um, so, um, but to quote um, the making of from Hong about bringing out the Lopan character. Mind you, Hong was 56 when they shot Big Trouble. But of his character, he says, To me, he's a natural because my dreams are like that. I have weird dreams and nightmares, and they go all over the place. So I just dig into the feelings of my nightmares and dreams. Okay. Um, I'm kind of like, that's cool as shit, but at the same time, like, what the hell is this dude dreaming about or having nightmares about? Because his character, I mean, it's, he's awesome, but it's weird and it's crazy. And it's like, so I'm just, you know, like, he's <laughs> just like a Hollywood actor. But, oh, but I'm going to have weird, crazy dreams. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I'd like to know though. I mean, hmm. I wonder if there's any interview with him out there where he talks about his work on Big Trouble. Anyway, uh, you know, but uh, getting back into some other characters now, I don't want to talk. Uh, I know I'm jumping around and Lopan's like the important character, but I also don't want to give spoilers too much because at the same time, there's a new audience out there who would love this movie. Um, but now it's time to talk about the three storms. And the three storms are made up of rain, lightning, and thunder. Uh, they're the mystical warriors that enter the movie in absurd fashion, of course. They're flipping their way into the scene. Okay. And they got these huge straw hats. This is like when they all end up in the alley. And and they're these mystical, you know, like these straw hats, which really is like the one thing that unifies them, aside from them representing the elements, because they're different elements. Um and the visual idea for them came from Carpenter from his, his inspiration from Shogun Assassin. And uh, the thing is, they were also present in the original screenplay. So this isn't one of those things that like Richter like added into the modern version. They were in the original also by Goldman and Weinstein. But what I really dug about the Three Storms is that they have different fighting styles, and to me, and and to me, they're like uber serious to a comical point, which is funny since they face comical ends in the movie. The most recognizable of the three storms is Rain, played by Peter Kwong. Um, Kwong, funny enough though, plays Tommy Tong in The Golden Child, which was a movie. Uh, I'm kind of curious how they did that because they were trying to film Big Trouble in Little China to get it out before the golden child, but he's also in it. I get, I, I don't know. Scheduling, I guess it worked out for him. Um, but my personal favorite movie that Peter Kwong is in, uh, he's in gleaming the cube. Okay. And if you don't know, if you don't know what gleaming the cube is like, do you even skateboard breath? Like, do you even pop culture? I mean, he plays like this bad dude. And he's not even like the main like dude in it, or main even the main bad guy per se. He's like he's like the right hand bad guy to the bad guy, who's not really a, who who's a bad guy, but like he's like more of a businessman bad guy, I guess. Um, anyway, 
Carter Wong, who plays Thunder, um, I'll say he had his most mainstream role in Big Trouble in Little China, but he has starred in like over 70 plus martial arts movies, uh, kung fu movies, you know, films like Shaolin Death Squad, Born Invincible, and Mission of uh, Mission for the Dragon. So he's done a lot of that. He does like a lot of choreography. Um, I, I don't know. I think the most recent thing he may have been in was maybe like in 2014, 2016. Um, he's a little older now, but, you know, he also has one of the funny, which we'll get into, but he has like one of the funniest scenes uh, in Big Trouble in Little China. Um, and then there's James Pax, who finishes out the trio as Lightning. Um, Pax is a Japanese actor, but he's been in some more mainstream fare like Invasion USA with Chuck Norris, um, and in Love and War with James Woods. Um, but I think for everyone who's seen Big Trouble, we can all agree one of the most infamous scenes is when Thunder, and this is what I was talking about, in an attempt to like rid the presence of Jack Burton, inhale, inflates, and explodes. And it's pretty funny. And originally the idea was to have his head inflate to a point where like it pops off of his neck and floats around the room like a balloon. Um, but that got the ixnay from Carpenter, uh, you know, because I guess I, I don't really know why, um, because what they went with seems like it would be more expensive, but apparently they thought that idea was going to be too expensive. Um, a floating balloon of his head. Um, because what was agreed upon was the concept of having his head blow up in multicolor confetti. And then of course the end product is much more detailed than that. And to me, a complete masterpiece of special effects and makeup, uh, even today, it still holds up to me. I mean, Steve Johnson, special effects master for films such as Predator, the original one, um, he did a Nightmare on Elm Street 4, Dream Master, Spider-Man 2, the one with Tobey Maguire. And Solar Babies! Didn't think I would talk about that again or bring it up in anything. Um, but Johnson and his crew developed this prosthetic head with working eyebrows and bladders. And if you don't know what bladders are, bladders are basically like balloons that, you know, they use little tubes to fill uh, with air to fill it up. And that way it gives like different movements per, say, facial muscles or muscles on a body, you know. And, uh, so, you know, it, it, had, it had its own air source, and they added more comedy with the steam coming out of his ears and nose, so that was kind of funny. Um, you know, that's, you know that's, that's how they did it. That's how you do it. That's how you did it back in the day, kids. That's how you did special effects in the movies, you know? Um, balloons and some latex and boom, done. Uh, but... Like I was saying earlier about production and stuff, like, I really feel like, you know, like, Big Trouble, like I said, is one of the first movies that I really paid attention and, like, realized special effects and how they did. And not, not so much how they did, but, like, it was amazing to me, you know, like, because I'm sure, like, at the age of 9 or 10, I must have, you know, like, the dialogue, some of the dialogue was probably over my head, you know, I wasn't really understanding what they were saying, but I was really, like, like acutely aware of like the special effects happening in the movie and 
it was it, it to me it's an art piece i think a lot of things too like people like oh yeah big trouble in little china is okay or something it's hilarious but like for me it's all those things but like at the same time i'm like dude it's to me it's like a visual masterpiece all the way around because the what they did with what they had what they had you know money wise or whatever and just technology at the time like it was cool you know um some of the two coolest pieces from the movie are like the wild man which you know and the guardian uh the floating eyeball thing creature you know um and wild man wasn't its official name but like i guess that's how like the the he was like a demonoid but like that's how they just called him in the skirt was like wild man um but the conceptualization of the creature was really like the output of steve johnson's imagination because you know as he states it again in the making of, you know, the wild man is based on a Chinese mythological creature. However, back then you couldn't just do a web search for a Chinese wild man creature. You know, this really, and, and this really became a testament to the ingenuity uh, and, and by a solid makeup crew like this at this point, you know, and the financial resources for the movie were like finite. So at the time when they, this the makeup and all that was happening. So like the basic, you know, uh, suit, you know, or structure was human form and a foam suit was created, but then they did like this spandex suit, which was painted like skin and they ventilated it with each hair in the suit. Like you would when you make a wig. I mean, dude, how crazy is that? Like, I think they call it flocking now or something in special effects. I don't know, but can you imagine like putting single hairs in like a suit or a wig? Like I, I couldn't do that. That's crazy. And that that's why it's, like, all the more, like, amazing, you know? Um, and, and so the technique was, you know, familiar to Johnson, though, from working with uh, the famed makeup artist Rick Baker. Um, and, and so I guess, like, Rick Baker, he's done, like, uh, he's done, like, a handful of, like, werewolf movies. So I imagine that's where Johnson got, like, the technique from. Um, but... They went on to, you know, like with the wild man, it went on to include mechanical arms that were elongated. And it's funny enough, the performer in the suit, like he kind of hated the suit, you know, and because he, he had to crouch his head down and stuff. And so like his vision was impaired for him. He couldn't see. And uh, but, you know, he and there was like this, like, I guess they were talking about like he had to wear like have his feet like molded at an angle and stuff because they wanted him to look kind of like have dog feet in a way. And. He just, in the scenes, he kept walking flat-footed anyway, and so it kind of became a debacle, but it still turned out to be a, be a piece of a work of art to me, you know? And uh, like I've been saying, from the script, the makeup, you know, the sets and special effects, you know, for the 80s, it's pretty cool, you know? I don't really have to sell you on it, you know? I don't think I have to sell anybody on it. I think you will listen to my podcast, and you'll say, man, I, I haven't seen that. I'm going to check it out. It sounds cool. And it is cool um, if you can get in the mindset of the time and, and the, like the dialogue because some of the dialogue is a little outdated, whatever, but it's all good, you know? And um, uh, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. Let's talk about the Guardian because this is kind of crazy to me. The Guardian is the multi-eyeballed floating creature that kind of has comic relief in the movie. You know, it's where like Egg Shen yells at him like, I put you in the past or whatever. And... Uh, you know, the thing is, like, again, Big Trouble cost between 19 and 25 million to make. This thing alone cost $100,000. Uh, 
And like we don't really think about that nowadays because like again we have like CGI, which is expensive, you know, I'm sure, but the simplicity and the ability and time saving that CGI does compared to this. And at the time, you're like, wow, $100,000 for that thing? And he only sees, like, maybe five minutes of the movie. Like, But what's cool about it is, you know, Johnson and his team had to create this creature floating, all eyeballs with working facial features and working upper, lower eyelids. And I think he said, too, I think Johnson said it was his first time using servos, um, which are, like, little – they're, like, little – engines little like machines gears and stuff that push and pull and stuff um robotic you know pieces if you will to give movement and they use them a lot in special effects and makeup to create movement and realistic feelings and things like our senses and stuff being visualized um but what a lot of the fans may not know is one yes johnson took a lot of the shaping and all that uh of the guardian from his work on doing slimer from ghostbusters but the guardian piece itself was actually two pieces there was a front version and there was a back version and what they did was they had a blue screen at the time and as i understand it they cut a hole in it and the eyeballs and all the servos and things like that like were were controlled by rods and all that. So what they did was they had all the rods going through the hole in the blue screen so you can see them and they could paint in or patch in the background. And so they would work and move the front, the face or whatever. And then when there's like a scene or two where he's like floating away, you see his backside. They did the same thing again, but it was the backside. But they had to have all this movement because of the eyeballs. Um, and and again, like I was saying earlier, like this this piece, it had a bunch of bladders in it. Um, because you had to move the mouth, you had to have it have a little bit of like bulbous movement in its body, and so it would fill. They would fill it up with air and drain it with air, so it would give you those like pulsing kind of feelings, you know. And uh, what you got was this comical little floating booger-looking thing, and kind of leaves you saying, "What the hell?" <laughs> but, um. There are many different examples of just superb special effects throughout Big Trouble. Um, from the sewer demon to the sloping corridor and even the arcade battle. But I think the most one of the most important aspects of the film to talk about, and I kind of mentioned a little bit in the beginning of, of, of the show, but the one of the most important things is the sidekick. Okay, the sidekick, I don't know if it's like an angle or or just treatment or whatever, but back before Oprah was giving everybody free cars, Carpenter, Richter, and, you know, I don't know, maybe even Goldman and Weinstein, the original scriptwriters, they were like, you know, everybody gets a sidekick. You get a sidekick. You get a sidekick. You get a sidekick. I mean, think about it. Burton has Wang, but really it's Wang who has Burton. Burton just doesn't know he is the sidekick. Spoiler! Uh, Miao Yin has Gracie Law, but then Gracie Law has Margot Litzenberger, played by Kate Burton. Litzenberger is a freelance reporter for the Berkeley People's Herald, but then she has Eddie Lee, played by Donald Lee, but before she has Eddie, he has Uncle Chu of the Dragon of the Black Pool restaurant, Wang owns, 
and I guess Wang has both of them, and Egg Shen comes along with his sidekicks, but then he becomes Burton and Wang's sidekick, and when it's all said and done, Burton is finally back with his one true sidekick, the Pork Chop Express. And speaking of, remember my sidekick spiel, uh, spiel from five seconds ago? <laughs> from the making of, some heroes have a sidekick, a significant other, or even a lovable pet to help get them through this journey called life. Well, Jack Burton has all of this combined in the massive 18-wheeler Peterbilt truck dubbed the Pork Chop Express. Optimus Prime would be proud. This is where the comedy or crux of the movie fall uh, falls because... Even though Jack is helping his friend to rescue his girlfriend, it's really secondary to him. You know, he's just doing it to get his truck back, you know. That's it. Uh, and what's cool, though, is like Russell even had to learn how to drive an 18-wheeler uh, because some of the scenes require for him to drive it on set. But uh, one final note on the Porkchop Express that this host thinks is really pretty fucking rad um, was when filming ended. Um, as it was custom then, as a memento, Russell bought everyone a miniature replica of the Pork Chop Express as a thank you. A custom, he says, doesn't happen much nowadays. Uh, and I'm like, what? Like, that? how cool is that, though? Like, how cool it would, I mean, even today, like, how cool would it be to have that, you know, as an actor or actress or whatever? I mean, or a person on the crew, like, I would love that. I wonder if you can find it on like eBay or something. You know, maybe one of them, maybe one of them is hard up for money and they want to, you know, sell it. I'll buy it. Let me know. Justin Gregory interested in buying it, but you know, and I'm a huge nerd when it comes to stuff like that, so. Yes, you know, I have the Making of Big Trouble in Little China book. I have the DVD, and I'm working on getting the tank top soon uh, to add to my summer attire. <laughs> but I want to talk about two of the coolest things, in my opinion, um, are there's a company called Sideshow Collectibles. A lot of us nerds or fans of comic books or movies or whatever know them. But they have like a subdivision called Hot Toys. And Hot Toys made a six-scale Jack Burton figure with full articulation, accessories. Like I think he comes with a jacket and the Guardian, which is cool as hell. Um, and, you know, Sideshow Collectibles. Sorry for the pause there, but Sideshow Collectibles, I'm just saying. Uh, if you are interested, you can send one my way. Just slide in my DM, PM, whatever, my instant messenger. Oh, yeah, dig it podcast show on Facebook. You can um, let me know if you want to send one to me. I'll do a review. Please and thank you. Um, I mean, the detail is so precise on these things that, like, there's YouTube videos on how to pose him to make him look cooler. Uh, and that's just freaking cool, too. Um, but the next thing about Big Trouble in Little China, and I think I used to have this, but I don't know. 
is really close to my heart because this is like on the artistic side of like the marketing artistic side of the movie, any movie. It's the one sheet poster that was created by my favorite artist of all time, Drew Struzan. And Drew Struzan is the most notable film poster artist from the 80s and early 90s. Uh, that's when the illustrated poster was in high demand. And uh, thank God that demand is kind of starting to come back. But if you don't know who Drew Struzan is, um, you check out his book, Oeuvre, which is it's a beautiful book that culminates most of his life's work, both commercial and personal. Um, he did like some of the Star Wars posters. He did the Hellboy poster, uh, the Pirates of Penzance, which was an 80s movie with Kevin Kline. Um, he's done some record covers for Alice Cooper and Ozzy Osbourne as well, or Black Sabbath maybe, uh, or maybe both. But he's the he the, the most prolific um, artist when it came to the illustrated movie poster, there's a lot of famous movie poster artists out there. I'm not trying to take away from them, but like he is probably the, he is the most well-known. Um, but he, he, and he did the most, the, there's an international poster for big trouble in little China. It's like more of a painting, but he's the one who did like the actual, like realistic, like pencil kind of airbrush look of Jack Burton holding the CB radio. Gracie Law is like in the foreground, you know, and all the supporting characters are around it. Um, but again, like top-notch work utilizing illustration and color techniques that have caused a resurgence in the present day by artists like Paul Shipper, Graham Humphreys, the Dude Designs. Oh, and yours truly when I do my artwork. Um, but Struzan, he really is the best, even though he is somewhat retired. Uh, but I implore you, check him out too. Like I want you, like anything I talk about, check it out because it's worth it. It's worth it. And these are like little like supplemental like things to my shows. But um, another notable addition to any Big Trouble fans collection should be the soundtrack. Um, and if you aren't a diehard Carpenter fan or an all-knowing pop culture geek like me sometimes, <laughs> then you might not know this, but like along with his writing and directing credits, Carpenter is also a composer. And in fact, he, as of 2016, his, out of his 18 feature films, he composed the music or the score for 14 of them. Yes, he did the, he's the mastermind behind the Halloween theme, uh, as well as being the director. Um, but as it goes, usually, or at that time, it would be like the editor and director and the music editor would sit down and do like these temp scores to get a feel for the movie. But they did that a little bit, but Carpenter just like, he pulled out his synthesizer and he was like, I guess watching dailies or watching the film as a whole or whatever. And just like feeling it and making like playing his synthesizer along with the film and they kind of went with a lot of what he right he did and uh one one more like cool thing that i thought i thought this was so cool um but i guess like one day like he was like working on it or whatever and like victor wong who plays egg shen came over to his area and was like telling him about this rallying song that the chinese used to sing when they were getting invaded by the japanese back in world war ii and so he like sang it to Carpenter and Carpenter like put piano to it and like orchestrated and composed it and whatnot. And that's actually like, you know, playing during the uh, arcade battle scene, you know? And then another fun thing to note is the actual 
end credit song, Big Trouble in Little China, is the band Coupe de Ville's, which is John Carpenter's band. And it even has a video. And that's kind of corny, but it's fun and it's cool. You know, it goes, again, it goes without saying, you should definitely YouTube it or check it out. But, um, you know, this movie's been out now for 33 years. And the legacy it leaves behind, I mean, it's it's still it's still about the spirit of fantasy, you know, and it's about of being oblivious but still doing like the best you can, you know? I mean, there's even <laughs> some of the dialogue in the film is so funny. It's like, you know, there's like that one scene where Wayne's telling Burton like uh, I owe everything to you. Your you, your debt, my debt is in your honor, or whatever. Da da da. And Bart's just like, I'm gonna do the best. He's like, I'll do the best I can. You know, like no promises. You know, and but that's just that. That's kind of like the element of the movie. You know, slapstick and but with like a heart of gold. You know, like they all want to help each other. There's an end result. Um, but they don't really know what they're doing while they're trying to get there. You know, it's just, um, that's what makes it hilarious to me. And I don't know if it's going to be good when the rock does a remake, which from what I understand, he's been talking about or has been publicized since about 2015. And I'm a big rock fan. And and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to judge anything I don't know yet. Um, and we've all been proven wrong by some of the remakes and some of the new concepts. But I think that if they were to re redo it, they should go with the Western idea. Try it in that vein. Um, but as for me, the impact this movie has, the characters... I mean, to this day, like even today at my job, like I quote, you know, Big Trouble in Little China lines um, because I can take it. Uh, but it's just that important to me to share with you guys. I think you guys, if you haven't seen it, what are you waiting for? Um, and I'm glad that I could take you on this journey today, this evening. And I'm going to leave you on this episode four of the Oh Yeah Diggy podcast show. Oh, I will say this. For what it's worth, Big Trouble gets five creamers. I creamed all over it. I did. And it was good. Because um, I can take it. Um, you know, like I say, I don't drive. I don't drive any faster than I can see. So. With that, I'm going to leave you with the Coupe de Ville's Big Trouble in Little China. Good night. Run until we take
Thank you. 